It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, oh, not just Michelle, but we pulled out the big ones as SciTech Talk today is going sci-fi talk with a little geekiness woven in. And I cannot tell you how excited I am about this topic because though he is the president of an organization whose scientific prowess is off the charts, though he is a microbiologist and I've sat under his his, his talks to fellow scientists, and my goodness, I felt like I was running a mind marathon trying to keep up. Yet, this man, Dr. Fazrana, has a geeky side, and we're going to tap into it today. It's going to be a lot of fun, but you're going to walk away with a God story. Fuzz, it's good to have you. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe. Now, reasons to Believe. It's good to have you, my friend. Michelle, it's always a blast to hang out with you. So looking forward to the, today's chat. We're going to be talking about the nuances in a sci-fi movie, Thor, Love and Thunder. And it really does speak to not just the God story, but maybe the God's story. Yeah. Fuzz, what are we seeing here? Paint the This is the main villain in the story, and this is a bit about his origin story. He's a guy named Gore whose daughter, Love, is about to die, and he's praying to his god, Rapu, with the hope that Rapu will hear his prayers and save his daughter from imminent death. And, and of course, the god refuses to answer his prayer his daughter dies. But interestingly enough, Gore deepens his devotion to his God, continuing to worship him, and then ends up encountering Rapu to, to deep disappointment because Rapu lets him down. But we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in a minute. Watch this. Ah, what do we have here? Ah. Look at it. It's gobbling up all my fruit. Bring her a flight. Oh, it's one of mine. I am Gore, the last of your disciples. We have lost everything. My lord, the land is dry. Our life is lost. Have the eternal reward. Is this why you celebrate? He thinks there's an eternal reward! No, sorry. There's no eternal reward for you, dog! We have suffered. And we have starved. <laughs> My daughter died. Suffering for your gods is your only purpose. There's nothing for you after death, except death. So this is my vow. All gods will die. Boom, all gods will die. So there's a lot to unpack. Though the movie is woefully woke and very disjointed, overly silly. And so they've lost some of that charm that Marvel once had of 
origin stories and imperfect heroes that have room for development. That was part of their strength, but they've gone to the nth degree and made things just a little goofy, silly, and cartoonish rather than comic bookish, in my opinion. All right. So having said that, then we have this story, which I think is a good storyline, and it does address a lot of things that already go on in people's heads where God is concerned. Yeah, I agree with your assessment of the movie. On the surface, it's a Thor movie, and maybe it takes itself not seriously enough. There's The comedy is overdone. They're trying to patch together really two different story arcs uh, from the comics, and that, that creates a bit of a disjointed movie. But the themes in this movie are incredibly powerful. And the ultimate question is, are gods worthy? And if they are worthy, what makes a god worthy? And from Gore's perspective, because not only does his God not show him compassion, he mocks him, he makes fun of him. And Gore has access to this weapon called the Necro Sword, which is the only weapon that can kill gods. And out of anger, he kills Rapu. And he goes on this killing spree throughout the entire universe where he's going to bring about the death of all the gods because he deems them unworthy. So Gore becomes this embodiment of atheism, right? Where the objective of atheism is to to bring about an end of religion, to bring about an end of superstition, that that religious belief in the gods is only going to disappoint us. But he's an atheist who's born out of not intellectual concerns, but ultimately about out of deep disappointment with his God. And how many people do we meet that are non-believers who, for them, God was hidden, God was silent, they prayed to God because somebody they loved was sick or was dying, and God didn't answer their prayers, or they were part of a church community and the church hurt them. Oh, that's real. It is real. I'm sorry, but you're supposed to know the one true God, and yet Christians can eat their own. People are human. And this is part of what we can unpack today. It it centers in on one, I guess, one single question, one single statement, one single idea that if God is good, why is there such horror and evil in the world? If you pray to God and your world still falls apart, is he still really God? And does he really give a dang about you? Yeah, that's, and yeah, that's such a powerful question that's being asked. So to me, it's my favorite movie in the sense that though it's disjointed, it's silly at times, as you said, cartoonish, underneath it, there are such powerful themes that allow us to make, I think, interesting bridges to the gospel in the heart of the Christian faith. And really asking the question, is the God that we worship, namely Jesus Christ, worthy or not? It's an incredible movie in that sense. And um, what's fascinating to me is I read the story arcs that the this movie is based on, and they were written by Jason Aaron. So he did a, a number of issues of The God of Thunder. And Jason Aaron has a very interesting story himself. He grew up in Alabama in the deep South and was a Southern Baptist as a young person. Church was very much an integral part of his life. And when he went to college, he walked away from his faith. He became an atheist. Now I've heard interviews with and and read interviews with Jason Aaron about his faith, 
or lack of faith. I don't know why he decided to leave Christianity, if it was a disappointment in God or other reasons, but you almost get a sense that Gore is a bit autobiographical with regard to Jason Aaron. At least I wonder if that's the case. And so the person who again, wrote the story arc in the comics that the movie is based off of is wrestling with these very themes. And so the movie does a great job, I think, of translating the comic into the big screen in that sense. Indeed. And I think there's some honesty in that his story is like kids who grew up in church and then go to the church of university that is hellbent on indoctrinating people into a socialist, godless ideology, which I don't have a problem with, believe it or not. Bring it on. But if you have the right knowledge, you can bring that challenge to your faith biblical worldview weighs out. Uh, That's why you, for one, you're never afraid of of a challenge scientifically, biblically, naturally, ideologically uh, to your faith because you want to know what you believe is true. So if you're in an honest place of atheism, that to me, I find that intellectually dishonest because no at very best you can't know if there's a god so i would say agnosticism is probably a little more intellectually dishonest atheism is just outright hostility towards god but that's maybe a topic for another time fuzz i think I applaud people who are honestly agnostic because at least they're thinking along those lines and wondering what's really going on there. But if you were to take a deeper look and really answer some of the questions that Gore in this movie posed, you might come out with a different conclusion. Yeah. And what's interesting is Thor is actually depicted as being rather unusual because he is willing to answer people's calls for distress. And so Thor will answer people's prayers in that sense. And Thor is held up, even at the very beginning of the movie, as a god who is worthy, as a worthy god. But most of the gods that are depicted in Love and Thunder are depicted as being truly unworthy. So there's a scene where, you know, Thor and Korg and Jane Foster, who is now also a Thor, and the Valkyrie are in a place called Omnipotent City, which is like a hidden city where all the gods live. And so as they walk through the city, all the gods from the different pantheons are there or represented. And they're going to Zeus, who oversees the Omnipotent City, who rules Omnipotent City, to warn them that Gore is coming and to to try to raise an army to battle Gore. And the gods don't care. They're not interested in that. They just want to be entertained. They just want to continue their party. And they are put off that Thor would even show up asking that of them. And they're concerned that now Thor has gone and divulged the location of Omnipotent City by simply showing up. So the gods that are part of Omnipotent City are really depicted as being completely unworthy of worship. They have no regard for their followers. So Thor does stand apart from the other gods in that he's at least willing to, to, though imperfect, willing to try to step in and help people in their time of despair. Do you know who was interestingly absent from omnipotent city is the one omnipotent god yeah probably all the gods that are depicted are little g gods there's not they're they're not 
No God that's being depicted is transcendent. And again, Jesus is excluded. Although there's an interesting conversation happening on the internet about a reference to the God of carpentry. So as they're walking through Omnipotent City, it's like a roll call. And the Valkyrie said, oh, there's the God of carpentry pointing to a God that's off screen. So some people have speculated, well, is that a reference to Jesus? And if that is, boy, Marvel has gone way too far. I don't think it is. I think it's probably Chinese God of carpentry or the Greek God of carpentry that was referenced, not Jesus. It, it does actually, again, lead to really an interesting conversation. There's something special and different about Jesus when you compare him to the gods of all the pantheons throughout human history, because he can be shown to actually have literally lived here on earth. He's a historical figure who not only lived in Palestine, but historically you can show that he was crucified. There's a strong historical case that can be made that he was even raised from the dead. So in a sense, Jesus is set apart in that he really did live and really historically displayed his divinity. Let's talk about that then. We'll bring in the SciTech portion of SciTech talk to this sci-fi talk we're having today. Historically, you touched on, and there are, you can delve into this with writings outside of Christianity, Josephus, for example. You can look into the forensics of the life, death, burial and resurrection of Christ, there are ways that you can, that it stands apart. Uh, the people who were used as witnesses, if you were to put this on trial, for example, the very first witnesses were women. They couldn't even testify in a court of law at the time of Jesus' life. If you were going to try to portray it, uh, and it was a lie, you certainly wouldn't use women. For example, and that's just a few examples. There's a lot. Of, what other scientific evidence do you have that this Jesus, the whole Trinity, God of the Bible, is any different than the gods we see laughing and mocking and partying and disinterested or semi-interested in man? Yeah. Again, the gods that are depicted are, again, little g gods that are really part of the universe itself. Whereas from a Christian perspective, we think of God as being transcendent. And Jesus is part of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that this transcendent creator brought the universe into existence. And so we have evidence from science like the beginning of the universe that suggests that something brought the universe into existence that is outside of the universe. And we see incredible evidence for design in the structure of the universe. We see evidence for design in living systems. But even when we look at the creation itself, it's very clear that the creation is structured in a way to so that the creatures that God has made are cared for. There's a providential element to, to the creation in which there you can see God's care and concern and faithfulness to, to all of his creatures. So when we think about God from a Christian perspective, we are thinking about this all-powerful, all-knowing God who is also a deeply caring God as well. And to me, what really, I think, seals the deal for Jesus being fully divine is this idea that dead people don't come back to life. I have a, a friend named Bernard Palmer, who's a, a retired surgeon from London, 
And he says, when people are properly dead, they don't come back to life. I love that expression. But so we have these two facts that juxtapose one another. One is that dead people don't come back to life and that we can make a very strong historical case that the resurrection actually happened. And so that to me says that something miraculous took place after Jesus died and that he was raised from the dead. And, and it also points us to, to what was happening when Jesus was crucified, when he was put to death. From a Christian theological understanding, this is the point where Jesus is now suffering for the sake of his followers. So unlike Rapu, who Ooh. is making fun of Gore, <laughs> Jesus is recognizing our need and our suffering, and he's suffering for our sake. Oh, so we come can- on. Yeah, I'm sorry. All that's right. a drop the mic moment right there. <laughs> but that's what makes what that's what makes Jesus worthy. And Jesus hasn't abandoned us. He never will leave us and forsake us. It so when we suffer, when we go through difficult circumstances, we have this understanding that we're not suffering for the God's amusement, but rather that suffering is accomplishing something very important in God's will. And that in the midst of that suffering, we are not alone, that Jesus is in fellowship with us through that suffering, that the Holy Spirit is bringing us comfort in the midst of that suffering, and that we know that suffering has a an ultimate purpose. There's a an ultimate reason for it. So it's not just, again, this frivolous thing that we're experiencing, but it's something deeply profound. And there's, a, again, a fellowship with Christ that arises out of that suffering. So when we talk about Jesus compared to the gods that are depicted in Omnipotent City, he is worthy, right? He's different from all those other gods, and he is worthy. And what a, a powerful way to build a bridge to the gospel as people are watching this movie. People may not want to necessarily talk about Jesus, but they will talk about love movies like Thor, Love and Thunder. And if we can show that the connection between the movie's themes and to the gospel, I think what a powerful use of the medium. I agree. It is because the world is set up in such a way, unchaotic, that you will see themes, even in fiction, that are not necessarily meant to be Christian. But because the world is the way it is, it, we have these longings, a God-shaped hole, a consistency in the universe that always the inroad really is God. Gore was longing to trust his God. Now, if even if his daughter died, even if everything in his world fell apart, he still had an eternal reward. But the God laughs at him. <laughs> There's no reward for you, dog. And that is the difference, that we have a suffering Savior. He came down and he walked the road that we have. Gore has also been likened to Job in a way, in in a sense, the Job of the Bible. Job was a devout believer in God, a devout worshiper of God. He cared for his family. Job lost everything. The thing that he loved most was taken away from him, just as Gore was, or happened to Gore. And so, Fuzz, Job... Uh, fell into depression and was consumed by grief, just as Gore was. But the difference was a phrase that stays with me when I go through trials. And it's not hard to utter, but it's hard to utter without emotion. 
And that is, yea, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. What's the difference there? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's very perceptive to to connect Gore, at least before he becomes the God Butcher, to Job, where Job is unwavering at the end of the day in his faith. And and it recognizes that, that there is probably a deeper purpose that maybe he never will understand. That's part of the exchange between Job and God it at is, the end of does, Job is that, many who read you know, that who story... are you to question me, Job? And then Job recognizes the error of that and really mm-hmm. adopts an attitude of worship and trust in, in, in who God is. God does say, who are you to question me? And yet he allows Job to question him. I mean, that that, come, let us reason. And God gives us reasons to believe. But if you read that story, let's just be honest. You can look at it, and it just seems like a game amongst gods. It doesn't seem unlike the story arc of Thor, Love, and Thunder. God and Satan are up there. Let's just have a little wager. Let's just play with a man's life. And that's what it looks like. So explain that, if you will, of your God, Dr. Rana. (laughs) Come on, yeah, bring it. Well, yeah, and there's elements question. that, again, are deeply mysterious when you look at Scripture, and that's, I think, one of those elements that that does trouble me to some degree. But then, on the other hand, there, there must be something more going on here than necessarily meets the eye, because when we look at the totality of Scripture, the, the, there are times where we clearly don't understand what God is doing, or even maybe fully understand who God is, it everything points ultimately to the cross, that if there's ever any question that we have about God's care for us, God's character, God's goodness, we have to go to the cross and see that at that point in, in time, both justice and mercy were brought in, in convergence with one another where there was a justice, a full accounting for the sin in the world. And yet at the same time, there's this incredible expression of love towards human beings. To me, I've always liked to look at those difficult passages in Scripture, not in isolation, but through the lens of the cross. That's well put. When you think about what happened at the cross, it's difficult to fathom that God would go to that degree of suffering and, and that degree of really self-humiliation for the sake of human beings who were at animosity with God because of our rebellion against God. And yet, as Paul writes, while we were still enemies, God did this act of love towards us. That's not only powerful, because God is so amazing, and his love for us is so opposite of what we saw from the small g gods in the movie. When you are going through unbelievable times and you saw the depiction of one man suffering and and, and not unlike things that we've experienced in the world but the presence of God's spirit is so real and so powerful that you can literally have joy and comfort and hope in the midst of the most heinous circumstance. It does not make sense. And I will tell you right now, I know this sounds, this sounds like I'm maybe mocking a little bit, but either you've gone crazy or God is real. And either way, you're going through circumstances and it feels a whole lot better. But (laughs) I've either lost my mind or God is real. But the Bible says, uh, calls it an ever-present help in times yeah. of trouble. 
And there is that help and there is that hope. And when you're going through those unbelievable times, you literally can look to scripture and know that God's word is truer than your circumstance. Let God be true and every man a liar. I wanted yeah. to bring it home because we're almost at the end of our time today. And this has been, we both have been looking forward to this because we're both longtime geeks and we talk science and heady stuff at times, but we've gotten to let our inner geek out with a, a little sci-fi here. I wanted to talk about something that was said in the uh, little clip that we showed. There is no eternal reward. You suffer for your gods and then you die. And for you, death is death. So I want to talk about that eternal reward. Do we have a hope beyond? Is there something else? And how do we know that? I'd like to talk to the scientist for just a moment. And what proof do you have that there is something beyond this, that we have a hope? Yeah. And I'll take a page out of my friend Hugh Ross's book. And that is, we have a, this understanding based on string theory that there are prob- there's probably a reality to this universe that is beyond our ability to access, that there are dimension- there's a dimensionality outside of the universe itself. And so this idea of there being a heaven is you know, is not unreasonable. It's that when physicists talk about a reality beyond the universe itself, that our universe is really a a local universe that's maybe part of a a much larger understanding of reality that gives us space to, to speculate that there maybe is a place where heaven actually dwells, where heaven actually exists. But love how Jesus defines eternal life, and that is to know the Father. And I don't think, as my in my faith, I don't think so much in terms of my eternal reward. I think of in terms of my eternal life, and yes. that eternal life again is simply to know the Creator. So this may sound maybe not the best, but if I would be a Christian, even if the reality of heaven wasn't in front of me, because it's, it means I could know God. Even just today. That, just knowing him today, just having yeah. him there. And I'm getting a little emotional because it's hard to not have that joy. You, even in the midst of trials, the things that, that break your heart and our family's experiencing one of those things right now, God's presence is so real. So just to have that connection today, forget eternity. I am so grateful. Yeah. As we're, I think running out of time, there's one thing that I think, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but to me, this is the cherry on top of all of this. And it's the character of Jane Foster. I find her absolutely a fascinating character because she's Thor's love interest in the first couple of movies. And then something happens and their relationship becomes estranged, but she's a physicist who's dying from breast cancer and the hammer Molinier calls to her and she thinks oh, that maybe by holding the hammer, I'll be cured of breast cancer. She isn't, but she transforms into the mighty Thor. And so she is now (laughs) human. Yeah, She's fully human and fully God. And she's the one at the end of the movie who is willing to sacrifice herself to save the universe, to confront the God butcher and to destroy the weapon that can kill the gods. But in doing so, she gives up her life. And she's an interesting Christ figure being fully human and fully God and is the one who ultimately 
brings about salvation. And of course, at the, those pieces of the movie that are shown during the credits, it raises the question that maybe there really is an eternal reward and that that Rapu was wrong. But anyway, but, but to me, I thought that was just an incredible depiction of of ultimately the uh, of the Christ of Christ, and that's being fully God, fully human, and out of that humanity, really understanding what it meant. I'm recognizing that was worth doing because it's an act of it was the ultimate act of love. And that's where we're going to leave it. Fuzz. It's been so much fun. And I so appreciate you, my friend. And I thank you for watching, listening, viewing, like this, share this. The God story is our salvation. The God story is our hope. And the God story has a scientific base. So if you're looking for something that's real and true and pure and lovely, I need you to just really look a little deeper into that God story. Fuzz and I will attest to it. Thanks, Fuzz, so much for being with me today. And thank you. God bless. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com.